Welcome back to the Magic of the Spheres podcast. This is Sabrina Monarch, and this is a show about spiritual lifestyle and personal evolution. And if this is your first time here, welcome. I'm so excited to have you. My name is Sabrina, and I'm an evolutionary astrologer, and I started this podcast to have more eclectic conversations about personal development and living a spiritual life. So today's episode was deep. I got to interview Jesse in person and I've told some of you on this podcast about these lights that I see, these sparkles. Um, and I was seeing them a lot during our conversation. I felt like there was a lot of embodied truth in what Jesse was sharing. Um, and I was really moved. I met Jesse through the grad student community. I'm a part of through the California Institute of Integral Studies And I wanted to interview Jesse because of a few encounters I'd had with him. One when we first met and I learned about the group therapeutic work that he does in prisons and another where he and a few members of the prison program who had subsequently been released from prison spoke about the program at a live talk, um, which was really an incredible experience and container. It was not recorded, um, but the energy in the room was really palpable and people, including myself, were really moved. Jesse Estrin is a lead facilitator for Insight Out's GRIP program, which stands for Guiding Rage into Power in San Quentin, a mindfulness-based violence prevention program dedicated to healing trauma and cultivating emotional intelligence. He is a licensed marriage and family therapist, MFT license, with a training in somatic therapy and depth psychology. Jesse has a master's in philosophy and religion from the California Institute of Integral Studies, as well as a master's in depth psychology from Pacifica Graduate Institute. There's some Saturn-Pluto themes ahead in this episode. Um, As Jesse mentioned in this interview, he was born under the last Saturn-Pluto conjunction. And we are now currently in a Saturn-Pluto moment as Saturn in Capricorn nears Pluto in Capricorn. And this alignment will be exact January 12th of 2020. If you want to learn more about this transit and how to participate with it in a meaningful and life-enhancing way, I wrote an article about it that you can get by signing up to my mailing list, and that will also sign you up for the weekly forecasts at monarchastrology.com. You can subscribe via the link in the show notes. And I wrote this article because there's a lot of, um, you know, Saturn-Pluto is a heavy transit, and there's some heavy things happening right now um, in the general mood, in you know, world events and all of the transits are participatory. Like there's a way that we can interact with the weather, so to say. And so I wrote about what is this time period, Saturn, Pluto, and how can we participate with it? Because really there's a lot, you know, every single transit, there's something that we can learn and gain uh, and deepen from it. So with Saturn, Pluto, it's a lot about Um, growth through taking accountability or becoming more aware and more responsible of our unconscious. Um, It's also about things like deep focus and, you know, transitioning from one kind of life phase into another, um, endings and beginnings. Um, So go ahead and sign up for my mailing list to learn more about it. an announcement. My upcoming Evolutionary Astrology Intensive is now open for enrollment. This will be the fifth run of this course, and there's a lot of students who have run through this course and express how transformational and empowering and life-changing it has been for them. This is an online deep dive four-month course that begins in January, late January of 2020. And you'll be learning the paradigm and techniques and wisdom teachings of evolutionary astrology, which is an astrology that I'm so passionate about. And this course is really all levels. It's for complete newcomers to astrology, but people that have an interest in, you know, human nature and the mysteries of life and archetypes and psychology. It's a great entryway into this study, Um, as well as for people that are already practicing astrologers or students of astrology that want to deepen their lens and learn this. Um, And if you've been resonating with my podcasts or my forecasts and you feel this call to, you know, learn this language with me, this is an opportunity to, you know, mastermind with me and an amazing community of people that gather around this subject and, there will be both a pre-recorded and a live component to this class. So you'll have access to video teachings for a lifetime. 
there are going to be 18 total live calls. So it's actually a really like there's companionship, there's connection, and there's checking in all along the way. I really want to help you learn and understand any of these concepts. Um, So I love to have discussions. I love to create community. Really, I do encourage people who sign up for this course to get to know each other. Some amazing friendships have formed out of this course and even study groups after the course is over. Another reason why I teach this course is that some people feel, you know, that astrology, like it's just hard to get, or it feels a little bit outside of them, or it's a lot of information when you're doing the research by yourself. So I've created a structure that goes over the foundational concepts of evolutionary astrology. So this is soul-based karmic astrology. So I teach about, you know, karma and reincarnation. And then I deep dive into all the archetypes and planets and aspects and the techniques of evolutionary astrology. So if you want to learn more about this, there will be a link in the show notes, but you can also go to monarchastrology.com and click the tab in the menu that says study and read all about this course in detail and sign up there. Also, I said something later in this episode that I wanted to clear up what I was talking about more distinctly beforehand. And I was talking about um, how I value the capacity to get into a bubble, um, a place of mental and emotional freedom, and to bring back down that experience here. And to further clarify what I mean by that, having mystical experiences of bliss, following one's bliss, having heightened tantric states, meditation, These kind of things um, are all ways to enter another beautiful universe. I fill my cup this way, and I think it's really a game changer to develop those channels. And so I advocate that people learn how to find that mental and emotional freedom for themselves. It's a way to step away from the suffering and inflammation of the world. And the place where I draw the line is re-entry. Um, that because I'm not living a monastic life permanently away from the world, there is some integration that needs to happen between those magical experiences that fill up my cup and how I show up in the world. In a contemporary context where we are surrounded with so much media and often triggering media, being able to learn how to retreat seems like an important skill. And in retrospect, I don't want to call this a bubble because bubble has connotations I don't exactly mean. Heightened states of emotional and mental freedom and clarity is what I'm talking about. I go into imaginative, timeless spaces most every day because it's where I get energized and inspired. And when I first started discovering this capacity within myself, there was an actual feeling of guilt, like I was leaving others behind. And was there something wrong with me for being able to feel bliss when others around me were not? You know, it was this process to thoroughly give myself this kind of permission to travel to those spaces and then discover how to offer things back to the world from the spaces I had traveled to. And even in life, whenever situations call me to be very present on the ground, so to say, like there's a kind of imminent crisis or I'm working with heavier themes of suffering, um, I still have to take trips up to replenish myself emotionally. I in general, seek to notice what is beautiful about this reality and connect emotionally in that way to bond with my lived experience. But I also resource visualization and fantasy for my emotional well-being. It's so routine for me to do now. You know, it takes a little bit more explanation, though, because it's a very specific practice and orientation to reality that I'm referring to. And so I, it's kind of a touchstone, a value of mine, you know, getting into visionary or imaginative states as a way of orienting to how to move about reality. And when I talked about the bubble later in this episode, I feel like I just, uh, it almost came out as more of an offhanded comment than what it really means to me at a deeper level. So I wanted to share that. Anyways, I will leave this here. And without further ado, this was my conversation with Jesse Estrin. Welcome, everyone. I'm here with Jesse Estrin, who teaches and facilitates mindfulness-based violence prevention programs in California state prisons. Just really deep work. And thank you for being here. I would love to hear how you got started on this path and what it looks like today. Thanks for having me, Sabrina. Um... 
Yeah, well, I first moved up here to the Bay Area, San Francisco, to do the master's program at CIS, which you did as well, Philosophy, Cosmology, and Consciousness. And um, I definitely got really interested in depth psychology and Campbell and Hillman and Jung and uh, Marion Woodman. And uh, I ended up doing a master's in counseling psychology after that, Pacifica Graduate Institute. And while I was doing that program, I connected with a teacher named Jacques Verdun, who was teaching at Spirit Rock. I was really hoping to see Jack Cornfield, but he wasn't there. So Jack spoke about Jacques spoke about this work that he does in San Quentin. So we connected and I did the training with him. And that was about seven years ago. And I interned with him a couple years before beginning as a full-time lead facilitator. Uh, the program is called GRIP, which stands for Getting Rage into Power. And it's a year-long 52-week program that weaves together mindfulness, emotional intelligence, victim impact, and um, violence prevention. When I started going in, I was seeing clients in my clinical work as an MFT um, intern, but I also was bringing this more depth psychological approach that was informed by astrology, by um, Jung, Hillman. And so I was also really intrigued by spending time with uh, the men who were serving time. And there's kind of been a, a, a way that it's uh, both practical, but also on a deeper level, really a, a spiritual and transformative work that has been really powerful to be a part of. And I consider it a real privilege and honor to be able to do the work with the guys in there. So the astrology side, I would love to hear how how you're connecting astrology to what you're doing. Yeah. So I don't I don't connect it too much on the day to day. But, we, you know, I was sharing earlier that I have um, Saturn Pluto conjunct in my 12th house and my basically it's a Saturn Pluto opposite Mars Venus, but Pluto is opposite Mars and then Saturn is also connected to Mars. So I see Mars as being connected with uh, the will and kind of the athlete or the warrior. And there's that, that quality that I think the men in prison, especially those who have committed violent of offenses, have had, especially like a Mars-Pluto connection. Um, also Saturn, Saturn kind of squashing or repressing perhaps the natural volcanic kind of Pluto energy or the Pluto Mars with Saturn there. So it is interesting. Sometimes I tune into a, some of those themes in myself or with the guys I'm with around, you know, explosions of rage or anger or violence. A lot of the guys come into the program saying, I just need help with my rage, with my anger. Uh, I don't know how to stop myself. The program itself is called GRIP, which stands for Guiding Rage into Power, which kind of has yeah. some of those themes in the title. Yeah, I really, I feel Saturn guiding like rage, Mars and power, Pluto. Yeah, exactly. And what is it? What is that difference between rage when it's raw and uncontained? And what does it look like when it's channeled into something like power? That's a really good question, actually. <laughs> Can you elaborate on it? Sure. I mean, um, you know, one of the things we talk about is we do talk about for a lot of we've been trying to get into women's prisons, but right now we're with men. So we do talk about what it's like for these men. What was it like for them growing up? A lot of times they didn't have the invitation to express many emotions aside from anger and aggression. So we work on unpacking what it looks like to be a man in in all of his vulnerability, being able to cry, being able to express and feel shame, helplessness, fear, anxiety, a lot of things that young men often aren't given permission to express. So we talk about what power looks like and the power of what a powerful man can do when he's in touch with his, all of his emotions. So I think, I don't know, guiding rage into power might be something around um, moving from a place of the lack of control and rage being this raw volcanic force. And when there's no containment, when it's not mature, it comes out in violent ways and um, extreme ways and sudden and explosive and spontaneous. When it looks like power, it looks like 
profound dignity and capacity to hold yourself, hold all of your emotions and move with wisdom and maturity and awareness in the world. It doesn't mean there won't be that raw, vital energy, but if it's channeled properly, it can come out in a beautiful way. And that's kind of what we're aiming for. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense with Pluto too. I think of it as laser-like free will and that if our free will is co-opted by impulses and reactions that we're not actually free, even if that reactive impulse we have has aggressive might or this ability to influence the environment, it's not necessarily coming from a place of power if we're not like feeling in... What's the word I'm looking for? Like self-possessed. Choice. Yeah. We, we talk about it as the difference between reaction and respond, responding. If you learn how to respond to the, the world around you, that's you have choice and power. If it's reactivity, you're, you're totally not in control and it's, it's not power. Yeah. So how do you slow down the process of like if you're just really angry, you know, and for people listening, perhaps like what's this? process of moving through anger in a different way Mm. yeah so there's a few pieces there well i'll say one thing we teach about and it's one angle in is we talk about how sometimes we consider anger to be a secondary emotion and that Anger can cover over what we call primary emotions. And primary emotions we talk about often are things like fear, shame, hurt. So for some of these guys, um, it can be really helpful for everyone, I think, for myself. It can just be helpful to recognize that when I'm really angry, there can be a lot more happening. We can be feeling many parallel emotions simultaneously. And often... If I pause or work with that anger, I can look under and it's like, wow, I'm feeling really hurt. I'm feeling really anxious. I'm feeling helpless. Um, I'm feeling embarrassed, feeling shame. Um, So with these guys in the program, we will work with how to slow down and be more intimate with their experience, whatever that is. Uh, We have something called moment of imminent danger, moments of imminent danger anytime we're triggered and we're activated. And basically the best way to catch that and track it and then work with it is to notice the sensations in the body. You know, we can notice thoughts, we can notice notice emotions, but a lot of times we can, those can just fly right by so quickly. So sensations in the body is a, is a, is a fairly, is an easier way to track what's going on. And so, we really work with the guys to gain that um, capacity through mindfulness, just become a lot more aware of what's happening in any given moment in our system. Our bodies hold a lot of wisdom. And so whether it's your fists tightening up, your palms sweating, your jaw tightening, your vision narrowing, your hearing kind of fading, your heart pumping, your your whole body getting heat tingling. I mean, there's a lot of different sensations we, we can all have. But if we start to notice that, it gives us an access point into interrupting and uh, the usually accelerating and escalating emotional experience. And then that gives us an opportunity to use tools to de-escalate and to kind of calm our nervous system. So once they, people might notice, I mean, that's a, a big step, right? That's kind of mindfulness 101. Noticing is the first step. And then you can use some of the tools, breathing, feeling your feet on the ground, connecting with the body, getting yourself safe in whatever way that means, walking away, connecting with a friend, listening to music, um, doing some kind of a meditation, whatever, working out, whatever can kind of help you within the circumstance, regain composure and and um, deactivate the whole system. Right. That makes sense. You know, it's interesting to hear some of this because I, I come from a place of not having a lot of anger in my experience. And it's been something I have to like lift out and experiencing um, the connection between anger and power, that there's a life force, or there's a vital kind of fiery energy in anger and having it, you know, too much of it or not being in touch with it at all are these two extremes. And it's kind of like the process of wielding fire, you know, is difficult or it's challenging um, in either way. Absolutely. 
And it's, it's totally true. It can be extreme on either side. So in our program, we do get a lot of guys who, um, have a lot of rage and anger and it's just, um, they can get flooded really quickly, lose their temper really quickly, very reactive. So their, their edge is really how to soothe, calm, um, bring cooling water energy. However, one might say that a lot of heat, a lot of fire, they get hot. Um, quickly but then we also get lots of guys who are are much more on a spectrum of numbness and depression and you know um you know there's kind of the hyper aroused versus hypo aroused so hypo arousal is more of that numb depressive not much fire hard to feel um hard to connect with some of that fiery natural healthy vitality so there's definitely people on both sides and myself i've been more on that spectrum i you know it's interesting because i'll be calm and cool but when i finally do hit my peak it it does erupt it becomes rage really quickly i've i noticed that on myself since i was a teenager but more often just because of my own constitution personality chart but also parenting and how i was raised i have more of that numbness that i have to work through and i think that's a whole process as well. Yeah. I have never heard that term hypo arousal. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The arousal of the nervous system, hyper being kind of act highly activated, easily activated, hypo being kind of under or slow. Right. And that connection between numbness and depression being the other side of the spectrum. Yeah. So, and both kinds of people are in the same program together. Yeah. We have big groups. We usually have 30, 35 folks in a circle. Uh, We'll meet weekly, two hours a week for a year. Um, If it's a prison that's further away, it's once a month for an eight hour day long. A lot of them have life sentences. A lot of them are for things like murder. Not always. There's some third strikers and folks who have shorter terms. But a lot of guys have a lot of time in already on average. Uh, you know, one thing we'll do is we'll name our tribe early on and it kind of sets a tone, but it also highlights both the absolute insanity and injustice of the criminal justice system. But we'll go around one of the first classes, we'll ask how much time everybody's served already. And then we'll go around and we'll ask how much time was involved in what we call that moment of imminent danger. That moment of imminent danger being that crossing that threshold from a profound trigger or anger into actually acting and causing violence. And so those are usually quick. So um, my last class at St. Quentin, we went around and it was 842 years collectively already served. So it's, you know, eight centuries plus of time. A lot of that, the guys on average is 20, 25 years um, and then the amount of time was 18 minutes and 36 seconds of imminent danger. So we just put that up early on on the board. One side is 842 years. The other side is 18 minutes, 36 seconds. And so it can kind of wake up around if we lose control for even a second, there can be huge and very long lasting consequences, not least of which is loss of life. And that affects the the victim or survivor's family almost as much as the the man who committed the crime because they are pulled away from their family their kids their community as well so it's wow yeah yeah i am wondering too about the the implications of this kind of life where you're in prison and that's you know you're serving for life how does this um translate to spirituality or like finding meaning in that totally it's a great question just talked about it last week with our our facilitator group we train i'll just mention we train uh, the men inside to become facilitators of the program so we're now in five prisons and we're doing 15 classes a year so we're getting five to 550 graduates each year which is great but that means we also have 80 prisoner facilitators that we're training so anyway we work with about 15 of them in San Quentin. We were talking about this last week, which is I've often noticed that a lot of the men in these programs are religious. 
and traditionally religious. Most would, I would say, be Christian or Muslim. Uh, a few Jewish guys, a few Native Americans, a couple Hindus, something like that. But usually they're Christian and Muslim. And I rarely encounter religious folks, kind of more conventionally religious folks out here in the free world. But I, f- I find a high correlation between men who are serving long prison sentences and connecting with meaning and purpose through any form of spirituality. And there are a number of guys who are more free-floating spiritually. They're more spiritual rather than religious. But a lot of them find it through religion. And I think I also find how it really helps them. It gives them purpose. They can find a sense of um, forgiveness for themselves. They can find meaning. They get connected with the religious community. They do service work. They often just want to give back and make amends for what they've done. Um, I think that's usually a really important psychological piece to kind of be at peace with what, with where they are in their life. Yeah. If that makes sense. It does. We talk about this on the show sometimes because of the connection between spirituality and psychology or spirituality and personal development and how there's a certain psychological need even to be spiritual and that, Sometimes the more dire the circumstance, too, the more intense the need is for that kind of spiritual connection. And I also think of it just in terms of, I mean, 12th house astrologically is like away from the world and it relates to prison and asylum and retreat. Hmm. And so finding um, when you're not connecting to worldly things in the same sense that we would out here as your source of meaning. Yeah. then you're going to find something else. Totally. I sometimes reflect on how uh, prisons probably one of the only places on the planet now where you don't have cell phones and social media. I mean, maybe retreats, people will turn off their phones voluntarily on retreats. But other than that, I don't know if there's many places that, or maybe high up in like the Himalayas where <laughs> there's no reception. But I mean, and of course, there are tons of prisoners who will sneak phones and you know, but most of them, yeah, phone free, you know, device free, no social media. They'll have TVs, they can watch TV, but um, totally. I think it can be monastic, like in many ways. And for some of these guys, at least the guys who are pre-selecting for these programs because they're into self-help and changing themselves and growing. Absolutely. They're, I routinely... I am routinely blown away by some of these men and the clarity, the power, the wisdom, the integrity. And I think sometimes the intensity of what they've experienced has translated into profound transformation and awakening. That's Pluto stuff right there. Um, Speaking of that, what are some of the transformations like that you've noticed in the people that you work with and perhaps also in yourself from engaging with this? Mm. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes it's hard to tease apart our program grip um, from other programs or their own life and their transformations. But we also do often see guys who really um, dive deep into the program and for whom it really opens up. We get into intense stuff around trauma, early childhood development, triggers. We ask them to talk in depth about their commitment offense, their crime. We do grief letters. We do unfinished business letters. So it's definitely, it's definitely deep and intense. And especially for guys who have never really looked into their um, their own shadows, their own pain, their own wounding it can open a lot of doors. Um, we try and do that in obviously as safe and as slow and contained space as possible. Um, a lot of folks, all of us, I mean, I'm sure you and I have had the similar experience of when we kind of wake up to our experience as children or, oh, that was neglect or that was abuse and this happened. It's like kind of these lights go on. So often a lot of folks incarcerated came from broken homes. And so they never even knew that being hit with a belt is counts as physical abuse or being locked up in your closet is, you know, that there's definitely 
a lot of access, but then it can also lead to profound experiences of healing and of connection and vulnerability. And um, I, one of our guys, he was actually a facilitator and he, I remember him telling me about how when he came to prison um, young, probably early twenties, he quickly became a shot caller for a gang and shot callers are leaders in their gang and they're, they run the prison yard, the politics. And so I kind of asked him what that looked like. And he was like, oh, well, basically, especially in the 80s or 90s, when some of these prisons like St. Quentin were really rough and really violent, he, I remember him telling me, you know, um, basically you want to be as scary and as crazy as possible. So everyone says that, that guy is fucking crazy. I do not want to mess with him. So for him, it looked like running with the gang and he would regulate the yard um, by stabbing people and he, he said he would st st do so much violence that when he was just sitting on the yard and he witnessed the stabbing he would just start laughing he's like literally I would just laugh that my re immediate reaction to seeing that would be start laughing but when he finally changed his life and um, a part of that was going to the whole solitary and coming out and doing programs at GRIP, it was about waking up to the belief system that he'd been living in. Gang role belief system, as we call it, male role belief system, prison role belief system, and getting in touch with what had driven him to live that kind of a life radically shifted something for him. And he got much more spiritual and then started his number one goal is to be of service, to be a peacemaker um, and to give back. One of the one of the phrases we talk about in our program is hurt people, hurt people and heal people, heal people, which now a lot of people throw around. So I don't know. We, we, that's been in our program for 10 years, but maybe we got picked that up from somewhere else. But um, the transformation can be really significant in just pivoting 180 degrees. And I tell the guys all the time, <laughs> so many people on the outside don't have the pressure to change. They're not suffering in that way and so a lot of people continue to be assholes and jerks and like just acting out and using drugs and alcohol or numbing or addiction and that sometimes these men are squeezed so tightly by saturnian pressure that they are literally being polished into diamonds and a lot of people on the outside aren't doing that level of work i would say wow that's a really amazing point um, I can just even connect to that personally of like the most difficult and oppressive experience that I had in my life, um, which was in 2012. And I've talked a little bit about it on the podcast um, of just like receiving unwanted psychiatric attention that it was so much pressure that I dove really deep into spirituality. And I learned like I thought that I was right. I thought that I was having a spiritual awakening, which I still believe. But the ways that I was acting in that spiritual awakening were not entirely uh, adaptive or, you know, good. And so just getting the feedback from my environment of how you're acting is upsetting the environment around you. Like you have to look at yourself. Um, and I changed from that. And for me, it's like that, um, I have like freedom now in a way that I didn't have during that time. But often when I think about that as a difficult time in my life, I'm also thankful for it because of, you know, what came out of it. Mm -hmm. So I hear what you're saying about that um, pressure really being, it's like a pressure cooker, I think of too, with Saturn, Pluto in general. And that's the the time period that we're in right now yeah. as well. So Yeah. And McTarnas talk about that. I mean, it, it, what does he call it? He says like forges the moral conscience is one dimension. It's like, yeah, the pressure and the intensity and really the suffering seems to be the case that humans grow most usually through suffering. I'm, I'm sure people can grow through luxury and ease and comfort, but usually if you're just comfortable and easy, you coast. And so it seems to be this paradox of suffering and not all suffering leads to growth and transformation, but often that can be a huge catalyst. Um, and I do think that's, hopefully what's happening right now collectively we're certainly in a pressure cooker yeah well i guess everyone's going to respond to it in different ways but i think that the education and spreading ideas about how to take 
these difficult circumstances or the kind of muck of whatever people are struggling with and offering a road out of it is a really important Saturnian responsibility to Mm -hmm. do, especially for people that have discovered or learned something they can give back at that point and help other people that are in the struggle. Yeah, totally. So this also brings up restorative justice. Um, I think that you know, I still like to hear what that is. It's only a term that I've learned since I've been at PCC and in this community. I don't think I heard that word before coming out here. Mm. So just like what is restorative justice um, as opposed to punitive justice? Sure. I think there's lots of maybe definitions of, of it. The one that we use just as a, even a general in a general way is, is a form of justice that centers all voices in the inexperience of trauma or harm or violence. So it's really allowing um, the voices of the survivors or victims to speak, uh, as well as the what we call offenders or perpetrators who caused the violence and then the community. And it's really trying to highlight the humanity of everyone involved and make space for everyone involved. And ideally look at it through holistic lens, you know, so if somebody, right, commits violence, um, it could be understanding it in a larger context. If, if they're black and if they're in poverty or if it's in a school system that punishes someone who's acting out, maybe there's ADHD, maybe there's no not enough teachers and staff to support, to help. Kitty might be acting out in, in a way for help, but it comes out as kind of getting in fight at school. And so rather than suspending, you know, um, um, what is it called when you kick a kid out of school? Expelling. Expelled, thanks. You know, it's kind of understanding the, the larger holistic perspectives. And um, unfortunately, we live in a very punitive society. And so punitive justice is really one, one-sided. It's it's seeing how one party is the victim, one party is the perpetrator. And it's basically trying to do the eye for an eye, which can have, there is some truth to that. I really do think people need to be in prison. I, I'm not fully abolition. I don't know what abolition really looks like in the sense of living in a society with no prisons and no police. Right now, I think we'll need prisons. It's just how do we do it in a much different way? And I will just say, I really, I do think it's so important to have like a social and political analysis of it all, right? Around the white supremacy that this country was founded on, the way people of color and black folks have been treated systematically. I was just actually recently in Alabama and um, an organization called Equal Justice Initiative founded by Brian Stevenson founded two things in Montgomery, Alabama. One's called the Legacy Museum about slavery, lynching and mass incarceration. The other is the Peace and Justice Memorial, which is specifically about the age of lynching in this country after slavery was quote unquote abolished. And I, it was so profound and so intense and it just really, it's beautifully done. I I recommend for anyone um, who's down there or to go to see it, but it really highlights how this country was founded on such a profound traumatic experience of not just genocide of the native peoples, but of kidnapping and slavery. And then even after slavery, the lynching, and then moving straight into the mass incarceration criminal justice system. So, you know, the conversation of restorative justice is really also trying to bring in all of these pieces and seeing how incarcerating predominantly black and brown folks into these prisons, often private prisons, is violent and it's unjust and it's punitive and it's it's still operating on some really ancient reptilian brain um, fear and domination. So I don't know if that answers your questions. I'll just say one more thing, which is um, towards the end of the program, we do something that's often really powerful to bring in a survivor or a victim of violent crime. Somebody who's had a close family member, maybe their child or a loved one who was murdered or something, and they'll come in and share that experience with the men. And it gives the opportunity for the men to really just sit and listen to that person's experience of what it was like to experience um, violent crime and lose somebody close to them. And then eventually the, the men can ask some questions. Sometimes these men offer apologies on behalf 
as someone who's committed a violent act to that person, um, there can be an incredibly healing dialogue back and forth. And what's so sad to me is the criminal justice system often for it like will prevent and it's almost impossible for a perpetrator, say someone who took a life, to interact or have any dialogue with the sort of the family mm. of that victim. And a lot of times, true, that victim's family wants nothing to do with that perpetrator, understandably. But some of them do. They want closure. And the courts will deal with the facts of the case, but they don't deal with the wounds. So a lot of times, even the survivors of the victims and their family never get closure. And they're left with open wounds. Some of them really want to connect with, with the perpetrator, but they can't legally. And so often in these restorative justice moments where you can bring the survivor as a survivor with the perpetrators, men who have committed violent acts, there can be such a healing in in that survivor or victim playing a role almost as like a, a representative, a symbolic or stand-in. And they can apologize, you know, they can express their grief and hurt or anger to these men and these men can apologize and there can still be profound levels of healing um, because they just are so hungry on both sides often for that experience, which also humanizes both sides and can allow for people to move forward and move on with healing. That's so powerful. I thank you for bringing the, the social justice element into this conversation. And I think that this goes into kind of a psycho-spiritual crisis of the world, of the country, that we have these, you know, in an individual, we have certain traumas and then we perpetuate cycles based on these traumas, but we have, you know, mass traumas that are then perpetuated throughout culture. And so I think that one of the, you know, big questions that we're living into for anyone who's wanting to make the world a better place or be on a spiritual path is how to work with, you know, what's really here on the ground beneath us. Because if we have privilege or access to luxury or resources, there is a way to kind of buffer yourself from the pain of the world. And you can get to that place even in meditation or something where you can just be in a bubble and feel amazing. And mm-hmm. I, I don't advocate that people don't go into those bubbles. I think it's a matter of bringing that consciousness um, from these elevated you know, free places in a sense and integrating them into the world here and also being aware of what's happening in the world and finding ways to bring healing to that. And I mean, it's still an open question for me. It's such a big thing to think about. Um, But a lot of what I work with is focusing on, you know, individual past lives, you know, traumas and how we cycle those in this life and that these stories, these imprints, they're almost like a grid of consciousness that is like a program that we're running that Mm -hmm. determines how we act. Mm -hmm. And I see that and feel that really powerfully with social injustices where it's like there's these programs or these grids of consciousness that are based in these really traumatic historical events. Mm -hmm. And to the degree that that's still operating unconsciously, it continues to perpetuate. Yes. Uh, 100%. Yeah, there's so many dimensions. Um, you know, something that I kind of grapple with is, yeah, like this current moment is so complex in so many ways. And there can be no denying the profound levels of privilege, whether that's male privilege, white privilege, class privilege, um, straight privilege. There's so many ways that the, the the normative modes can be usually invisibly dominating and oppressing others, often without the person doing it, realizing it, because that's the definition of a bubble. Um, yeah. And as someone who fits all those categories myself, I'm in that category. And so it's I find myself in the interesting place of really wanting to leverage my privilege, my knowledge, education, everything to being of service for more justice. And how can I bring that everywhere that I'm going or continue to do the deep work to um, create more quality justice and awareness in the world? And it's such a complex moment because I think there's such understandable pain and suffering and anger that I have this 
interesting and complex and sometimes difficult conversations with friends where I do feel like sometimes there can be such almost blind anger and rage towards a generalized enemy, which can be the white, the straight white man and patriarchy. And I think it's easy to slip into othering and judging. And it's the, the complexity is, you know, I work with these guys in prison who've done violent crime. When I often talk about them, if I talk about my work, so many people say, wow, you know, that's incredible work. These guys are such beautiful souls. They're not monsters. Like, you know, even if they've taken lives or robbed or raped, like they haven't, they're also hurt people, hurt people. They were hurt. They deserve just, you know, compassion and opportunities to heal and do deep work. They deserve to be seen and loved. And a lot of them have experienced profound trauma that obviously led them to commit other crimes. So I often will sometimes be in an awkward position of saying, well, if, we, if we want to speak generally about white men and how they've colonized and enslaved and fucked the whole planet from Europe hundreds, you know, centuries ago, I'm also curious about how do we also hold compassion for that white alienated wounded soul that has found the need for some reason or other to dominate, extract, oppress almost everything around them. And kind of to your point on the karmic or soul level, how do we continue to hold space for everyone to be doing the healing work and not get uh, stuck in a one-sided place? Yeah. And divisiveness and projecting, you know, onto others. I appreciate you naming this too, because this is, I mean, this is hugely up and it's something that I witness on social media, just really inflammatory, um, insult and accusation hurled around, um, the internet. I mean, it's, but it's in culture and it's a difficult trap to get into because when we treat someone as the enemy, we're kind of inviting the worst in them. We're putting Mm -hmm. them on the defense. Um, and it's a way of relating that is extremely distrustful and it doesn't, um, It's like, what is it doing? What is it creating? And I think that learning the skill of inviting or calling in, people are calling it as opposed to call out culture, call in, like ways to invite the best out of people um, is is an actual skill, I think, to learn. Yeah, 100%. And I think we're all learning that. And I think the movement is learning that. And, you know, I think this, it's so understandable why people in... I was going to say activists, social justice circles, but really anywhere can, there's just so much hurt and so much trauma. Everybody's traumatized. The whole system is traumatizing everything from the financial system to the political system. I mean, it's inherently racist and sexist. So there's so much trauma that it's understandable. A lot of people are angry and hurt. Um, But yeah, if it becomes more, if it's, if it's, if it's in that vein of us, them and enemy and, cancel culture, call out culture. The unfortunate part really is it's actually not going to help. It'll actually further divide. You'll get white men who are so angry and hurt. They'll say, well, screw this. I'm going to go be with the Republicans. If the left is going to be, can't see my humanity and all I'm called is deplorable and racist. And, you know, it can be so, I think that's a slippery slope. It's easy to forget that we aren't seeing the human sides. And especially if all this is being done in, social media echo chambers online where it just further disconnects us from any humanity. If you're sitting in front of someone with someone, it's much harder to, there's just much more way to stay connected usually. Right. Do you feel like there's a way that in your day-to-day life, this kind of awareness around relating to the humanity and people, like how does that shift kind of your experience? Or I think I've seen you post something about judgment and kind of witnessing yourself yeah, I mean, I think I, I'm i not great at it myself. I try to just catch myself if I'm judging. And I think it's so cliche about how we judge people who reflect our own stuff. I drive and I don't know, I grew up in LA and I can kind of be a little bit of an aggressive driver. And it's so funny because someone- I learned will, how to drive in LA too, so. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's like- someone will cut me off. Someone will cut in front of me driving and I will have such a trigger around it. I will get, I literally have to sit there and say, okay, take a few breaths. 
you do this all the time and I don't know they might need to get somewhere it's like I don't know but it, it's so funny just watching how we do that um and I think the thing I wrote about I guess now that I'm remembering is I saw a guy and we I don't know he just kind of walked in and we locked eyes and I just he, he had an appearance and he's like we just kept for some reason making eye contact and it was not friendly it was this kind of more like reptilian brain checking each other you know there's all these studies about how eye contact can be deepening and opening but it also can do the opposite people will fight when they someone they, they get to sense someone's looking at them there's a lot of stuff that can activate our nervous system just from eye contact but um i was just judging him and i, I was just rep just had all these stories about him and I was finally, after I left the coffee shop 20 minutes later, I saw he was sitting with someone and they were reading a book together. And it looked either like the Bible or the 12 steps book. And I saw him earnestly kind of sharing with this other person. And I, it really hit me that it was probably their sponsor. And it just, I totally actually got emotional afterwards because it was so endearing. I just saw him in such a different way as someone who's struggling and suffering and trying to do better and grappling and it's what we're all doing. And so it's just easy to get caught in those cycles of judgment and anger. And yeah, I, I really feel like with the Saturn Pluto kind of collective transit right now that Saturn can do this thing of materializing the unconscious. So we have this opportunity to witness our unconscious in action and even Saturn can slow things down. So I've been having this repeated circumstance of being, you know, because of the, self-development kind of stuff that I'm doing. And I work with a coach. So I'm like getting feedback and getting perspectives outside of my own, which is really crucial for me and working with changing my thoughts and being aware of my thoughts and all of that, that I will be in an encounter where I have like the worst stories about what's happening or about this other person. And I'm very, uh, I feel like I hold it back in a sense where I don't dive into that story, but I'm like, oh, this is coming up for me, but I'll do my best to interface with the situation in a trusting and open and present way. And I'll watch the person or the circumstance show me this, you know, elevated or noble or, you know, positive expression that goes way against the story that I was beginning to project on them. Yes. And it's been happening so frequently that um, you know, and of course the alternative, if I'm really reactive and project that story onto that person is I can feel the in inflammation in the situation and things spiral in a really negative way. And yes. so I don't, you know, I don't like to do that. And so having that, um, a practice of being aware, you know, but it's been far more frequent in occurrence of late than it ever has been in my experience. Mm. Um, and I attributed a little bit to the climate. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, the monkey mind is a strange thing. And it's unfortunate because a lot of times it's negative. It's negative stuff. We, the thoughts, the stories, old patterns that just kick in. Um, I love, um, oh boy, what's his name? He does uh, the Buddha's brain and cultivating shoot i'm absolutely spacing on his name it'll come to me but he's a meditation mindfulness teacher neuroscientist also richard hansen or is that richard hansen wow hansen is his last name but he talks a lot about how the, the mind is like teflon for positive thoughts and, and you know velcro for negative in the sense that sometimes it can be really hard to receive compliments it can be really easy to latch on to any critique or negative. He'll, he'll say that, um, you, you know, if you go into bed at night and you've had, a, let's say, 100 interactions in the course of the day, like 90 of them are like positive, you know, maybe 80 of them positive, 15 of them are neutral and like five of them are negative. It's like, what are you going to ruminate on at the end of the day? It's like, are we going to sit there like really being nourished by those 80 positive experiences it's like no usually we're just dwelling and rehashing those five kind of negative interactions i mean literally last night at the end of the day i found myself ruminating about like one negative thing and i was like okay that's it i'm gonna like i didn't write a gratitude list out but i got out my phone and made a voice note of what i was grateful for because i didn't feel like writing but i 
went to bed doing that. And Mm. I noticed that when I have a gratitude practice, it's conditionally or it significantly conditions my mind, but also my external environment that I'll actually start to receive more and more blessings or like success even in my business or opportunities when I'm in that grateful space. Yeah. And it's a huge mind game. Yeah. Huge. Those are the foundational building blocks for power, for happiness, for peace. That Velcro image makes a lot of sense because it it is those like things that hook into us and trigger us that, you know, can grip us at a really deep level. Yeah. Rick Hansen is his name. And I think they call it the negativity bias is the Velcro. So the goal, I guess, is how to become Velcro for positive experiences and for like things that can open us and nourish us. Um, Ironically, it's that paradoxical truth that we act out at other people and harm other people or with words, thoughts, feelings, physical, whatever, often because it's, it's all coming from inside of us. We're feeling empty and angry. We're doing that to ourselves all the time. I think that's a huge game changer and really hard. And Jung talks about that all the time, projection. And we're seeing it, unfortunately, on the collective level right now, big time. Um, and it doesn't doesn't usually go good places. Yeah, it feels like a really important process for individuals and the collective to be going through of identifying what our projections are and taking greater responsibility. I feel like that's another Saturn-Pluto thing of taking responsibility for our unconscious and our shadow yeah. so that we don't have to throw it on someone else. That's right. And that's why sometimes I think we all need to take responsibility for our shadow. And that includes folks on the left, liberals. It's mm-hmm. like, we it's so easy to point at Republicans and Trump. I mean, and there's so much to point out. But you can get idea, uh, dogmatic and militaristic and fundamentalist about anything. True. About veganism, about social justice, about racial justice, about patriarchy. So I just always think it is important for all of us to be doing this work. And I will say... I just went to an event a couple nights ago, this woman, Stacey Haynes, um, who started an organization called uh, Generative Somatics. Maybe if you haven't heard of it, you can check it out or any of your listeners. They're a phenomenal organization that do deep um, somatic based work. It sounds to me very similar to GRIP. I would love to get more involved and learn more. What's the name again? It's called um, Generative Somatics. So it's somatic based healing work, healing modalities. and kind of particularly for activists and organizers and folks doing a lot of social change, considering the burnout and the trauma, especially for folks of color, people from you know working class backgrounds, whatever it might be, uh, it's really tying in that political and social analysis with amazing healing modalities and somatic modalities for healing and transformation. She spoke about it really well, and she just came out with a new book. Um, but I think that's that's such important work for all of us to be doing, especially at times like this. Yeah, that's really inspiring. It's really on my heart right now to discover more ways that I can be of service to the world. Um, just based on my own kind of spiritual practice, I do have this ability to go to these like high places and I've had a visualization practice and I do things to get myself into peak experience. And that's like part of my happiness and spiritual path and getting to those places. um, I've done a lot of work to build the neural and like whatever pathways to get up there because I used to have so much resistance. Like I would try to visualize my life being a way that I wanted it to. And all these gatekeepers would come up of like, you can't have this, like, you know, and I worked through that, but it's, Like that's settled for me that I can do that, but it's like, I really want to bring certain, like that kind of freedom or that ability to go to those places to people who have a harder time accessing that. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah. Seems to be the name of the game is about service and fundamental level. Yeah. I mean, how to give back from what you've learned and gained and your skills and your business and your offerings, how to offer those to folks, maybe different um, different folks who might not be able to afford it or not have access to it. I think it's great ways just to think about and how to 
yeah, really be giving that gift of what you're doing with yourself to others. Because a lot, a lot of people, almost all of us, I think, have the same struggles as you're describing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's something that I'm, it's an open inquiry at the moment. Yeah. Um, one other thing I want to ask you is about, you know, your spiritual practice and just kind of your vision of what spirituality means to you and how it's connected to this work that you're doing with people and the restorative justice. Hmm. Yeah. So I guess to see my spiritual practice, I don't sit every day. I, I really try to, and I don't have a specific practice. Um, I do a lot of prayer, so I believe in a higher power that's not really confined to any religion. And, um, but I believe in the intelligence and a higher intelligence that's looking out for me and is deeply personal, deeply relatable, deeply powerfully intelligent. And, um, just, uh, deepening my relationship and, um, dialogue with what I call God. <clears throat> and so, and then sometimes I'll do practice. That's a little more, just if I'm kind of frenetic and frantic, I'll do some, um, kind of more breathing and meditation. Sometimes I do some like Wim Hof style breathing, pranayama, mm -hmm. to just kind of fire the circuitry, get everything online. Uh, but often it's prayer and I try and do it every day if I can. But, um, and sometimes I pray with ash and tobacco and a more and from another tradition. And um, yeah, I try and cultivate a, a more and more conscious relationship to my body, to my mind and my thoughts, and also to a vast range of beings who I believe surround me uh, on the invisible realm, who I think are looking out for me, supporting me, whispering in my ear, and who I probably continue to ignore and forget about. So I'm often just trying to remember and stay connected. And um, yeah, trying to do my part in this world. And sometimes it's just a simple prayer of open my heart, open my mind, open my body, and help me be of service and learn how to love better. And just being guided by that. I love that prayer. I mean, I love prayer and I feel like I pray a lot throughout the day. And I always love hearing about how other people pray because it gives me new ideas. I feel like it's a a great friend. Like I'm thinking of Rumi or something or some Sufi poets referring to God as like the friend. I'm not sure if it was Rumi or like Kabir or something, but um, that it's this source that we're all in contact with. And so hearing how other people pray, I'm like, oh, that's how you connect. Cool. Mm -hmm. Like, let me try that out. Totally. Um, and I do feel like there's a, a way different reality that you can open up if you start the day asking, like, how can I be of service or like, please open my heart to what I need to be open to today or show me the way. Totally. And I do think, you know, it's interesting. I struggle with, you know, the, the conversation about our spiritual beliefs is tricky for me. I haven't grown up in a very secular family and a lot of friends who, for whom, you know, the word God or any kind of religion or a lot of most people are not too offended by mindfulness or that kind of stuff. But I've found this, my somatic contraction and resist like fear, caution around speaking about it because I think it's, it can be divisive and people have trauma around past religions and terms like God or, and it's like, it's just an interesting edge for me because I'm, I believe in all of that. It's actually incredibly meaningful to me. And so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of in this moment of like, what, what is that resistance, hesitance, fear for me around speaking openly about it? And um, everyone has their own beliefs, but I think it's important. And for me, it's a huge resource and a factor of resilience. And I find that in the prisons too. It can be really helpful for folks on their journey. So true. Yeah. So thanks for the question. Yeah. And I'm with you. I grew up in a secular family too. So I don't really feel trauma around the word God, but I understand that that's, that's out there. And totally. it was like a thing to, to kind of like navigate, like, oh, I'm going to pray now, but I don't have a childhood history of praying or being told to pray. Sure. And so I imagine it's way different when yeah. you've received religious conditioning of any kind. Mm-hmm. If people are interested in learning more about your work, how can they find out more? Sure. They can um, 
Google, the GRIP program, Guiding Rage into Power. And the organization is called Insight Out. Insight, I-N-S-I-G-H-T dash out dot org. And you can find out all about our work there. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing with us, Jesse. Thanks so much for having me, Sabrina. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please go leave a rating and a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. And if you take a screenshot of your review before you click submit and email it over to me at sabrina at monarchastrology.com, I will take down your email and send you a free gift once it's ready that I'm preparing for reviewers of the podcast to thank you for reviewing. If you want to learn more about the Saturn-Pluto conjunction of 2020, there is a link in the show notes to sign up for my mailing list. And by signing up, you'll automatically get an article about this conjunction. If you're listening to this episode somewhat far out into the future, like say after February of 2020, it probably won't be an offer on the mailing list anymore. So you can still sign up for my mailing list to get the weekly forecast, but this Saturn Pluto article is a limited time mailing list offering. Take care, everyone, and I will catch you next time. Mm